Justin Joseph, if you didn't get the joke there. Appreciate that. And uh, we are going to be starting our series in Joseph in February. So if you've been with us the last few years, we did, uh, it's really a traveling through the book of Genesis by focusing on some of these uh, people. So we started with Abraham uh, a couple of years ago. We did Jacob last year, and then we're going to get into Joseph this year, take us through that uh, latter part of Genesis. So looking forward to that. But right now we're in our Church in the Mirror series, and we've said that as we've looked at this, that when every time you look in a mirror, you see a reflection, but you also see a gap. Uh, you see a reflection, hopefully, that accurately reflects where you're at, but you also see a gap between that reflection and where you want to be. Uh, and the question is, what are you going to do with that gap? What do you do with the gap between your reflection and where you want to be? Some of you spend a lot of time on that gap in the morning, and others you maybe spend very little time on that gap in the morning. Um, but there's a gap. And when we look in the mirror as a church, we see hopefully an accurate reflection of where we are. And then we think about where we want to be and how we're going to deal with that gap. So um, we're looking at that uh, in regards to our church and our lives. Every January, we really start out with a series that looks at some of the fundamental practices in the Christian life that help us to stay close to Jesus and to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And this Church in the Mirror series is to that end as well. So the first week, James talked to us about uh, the Bible, the Word of God, how important it is to be in there and how to spend some time in the Word of God this year. Last week, we talked about prayer, the importance of honesty in prayer and being honest with God in prayer. And this week, we're going to talk about money. That's right. It's not very exciting. Uh, uh, but I think uh, when I say that, I thought about that, and I thought, well, that doesn't seem like an a, um, appropriate segue. Prayer, Bible, money. Uh, maybe you think, yeah, church talks about those things all the time. Maybe. <laughs> but I think sometimes we think prayer, Bible, church, those things are my spiritual life. Money, work home, stuff like that, those things are like a different part of my life. But here's what we know. Here's what I know. Here's what we believe at Mount Hope. Every aspect of our life is forming us spiritually. Every aspect of our life is forming our soul in some way. And everything from whether you pray or read the Bible to how you handle money interacts and shapes your soul and my soul. And here's what I know is true about you. I don't know if you prayed this morning. I don't know if you read the Bible, but I know you made a financial transaction this morning. And that has somehow affected. And you say, no, I haven't. I drove straight to church. I didn't pass go, didn't collect my $200, didn't stop for a coffee. I didn't make, I didn't make any financial transaction this morning. Did you turn the lights on when you got up this morning? Was the heat on in your apartment or your home when you got up this morning? All of us in some way are always interacting with money. And this, maybe that's why Jesus talked about it so much. Maybe that's why it's talked about in the Bible so much. Because there is a shaping influence of it on us, on our lives, and on our soul. But it's not just the Bible that recognizes this. Uh, there's those that would not necessarily profess to be Christians that, that can see this truth to be true in the world. 
In a Boston Globe article, they uh, approached the question of, does money change you? And they emphatically came to the conclusion that money does change us and uh, not necessarily for the better. This is a quote from the article in The Globe. As a mounting body of research is showing, wealth can actually change how we think and behave and not for the better. Rich people have a harder time connecting with others, showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They are less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help someone in trouble and they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. If you think you'd behave differently in their place, meanwhile, you're probably wrong. These aren't just inherited traits, but developed ones. Money, in other words, changes who you are. A little later on in that same article in the Globe, uh, the Minnesota Carlson School of Management is quoted, and it found that even the mere suggestion of getting more money to a person, so not actually putting it in their hand, but just suggesting that they might make more money or, or have more money, a technique they call priming, makes people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and more likely to support statements like some groups of people are simply inferior to others. So it's interesting that not just the Bible, but other resources can look at this and say, you know what, money changes us. It does something to us. It forms us. And so every year as we talk about some of the things that could draw us close to God and practice in our lives are important, one of the things we look at is generosity or money in our lives and say, how are we handling that? How is it forming us? Is it doing it in a positive way or is it doing it in a negative way? Because this is an important aspect of the world that we live in and it's one of the influences that shape us. So last October, we took our church health assessment survey, and thanks for those of you that participated in that, and we said we're going to share some of those responses with you in this series. Basically, it's a church looking in the mirror. How are we doing, Mount Hope? How are we doing with things like stewardship? How are we doing with things like prayer? How are we doing with Bible reading? So here's a few questions that were on stewardship in that assessment. One was, when we gather to worship together, how well are we as a church? invited to engage in giving our tithes and offerings as a reverent act of worship. Tithes, uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's a biblical term, basically meaning 10% of, of an income. It's basically the concept of God gives us all, if God gave you $10, that one of those dollars, you say, God, I want to give this back to you. And that's a tithe, that's 10%. And so 10% of your income. How well are we doing with tithes and then offerings that are above and beyond that 10%? And this is encouraging. 62%, the Burlington's in blue, Belmont's in orange there. 62% of Burlington and 20, said extremely well in inviting us to engage in giving tithes and offerings. Another 25% said something like very well. So we're at like in the high 80 percentile there of people saying, you know what, Mount Hope does a great job inviting us to give. Now, the, the kind of shadow side of me, <laughs> pessimistic side, looks at that and says, well, maybe people just put that, so yeah, you talk enough about giving. If I put a high enough rating, 
Maybe they won't talk about it anymore. But I don't think that's why you put it. I'm not going to, I'm just going to go with the more optimistic side. I'm going to be encouraged by those numbers because it means, hey, here's an important aspect of our Christian faith. In Mount Hope as a church, we make it clear that this is important. I'm also encouraged by this because I actually wondered a little bit because we have not since COVID brought back passing offering bags in service. Now, if you've started to come to Mount Hope since March of 2020, you may not know that a part of our service where Justin just prayed for the offering, at that point, we used to pass bags down the aisle and you guys are familiar with that practice and we stopped that in COVID, we never brought it back. Um, and, and I wondered if not having that would feel like we're not emphasizing how important generosity and giving and things like that are to the, to the Christian life. But I was encouraged by these numbers in that. Next question uh, said this, how well does our church provide instruction on finance? Okay, so you invite us in, but how about instruction? These numbers are uh, 45% said extremely well in Burlington, 31% said something like very well. But the numbers that jump out at me here are that one on the end, 10% in Burlington said, I don't know. I don't know. How well are you doing instruction? And 10% gave a three, which I equate to kind of like, I'm not sure. So 20% of people on a Sunday morning in Belmont, uh, Burlington are kind of saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure how well we're doing on instruction. So that, there's a gap in our reflection, right? You do real well inviting people, at least a fifth of the church would say, but we can do better on providing some instruction. And so we gotta do something with that gap. Uh, I will say throughout the year and this year included, we will offer some financial courses on instruction and, and uh, biblical ways to handle our finances. So keep a watch out for that. And, uh, and those will certainly be coming this year. Next question. Overall, how effective are we at living out stewardship and generosity in our church? <clears throat> Again, high numbers on the five and four, extremely effective and, uh, you know, very effective. But again, the number that jumps out at me is 18% in both locations said, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not sure how effective we are at that. <clears throat> and so I think there's something for us to learn there as well. That maybe, even though in October at our annual meeting, we might be very, take some time and be very detailed about how we handle our finances, but perhaps we can do a better job throughout the year of talking about how we steward our funds, how we steward our finances. There's a gap there, at least for a large chunk of people that we could do better on. Maybe we could do better on promoting. Like if you go to our giving page on our website, you would see there's opportunities to give, but there's also a benevolent side, if you scroll down, that lists needs that are there and how we steward funds for those needs. If you go there this morning, there's, a, I think, a single mom listed there that is in need for some housing assistance. And so we try and communicate some ways that we're helping and help is needed, but we can do better at that, I think. For That's, that's what some of those numbers say. Final slide. In the past 12 months, I've supported Mount Hope financially by giving... And a number of options were listed there. But D was a tithe, 10% of my income. 20% of people in Burlington said, yes, 10%, 35% in Belmont. And then E was more than 10% of my income. And that's 18% and 14%. So uh, in Burlington, uh, what's that, 37, uh, 45, about 45% of people said, 
Now, either give a tithe or more than a tithe um, to Mount Hope. I, I want to say that's an, that's an encouragement <laughs> in a number. I, I, if all the surveys and all the numbers that come back, if you were to look at national numbers and compare us to that, um, I would say the most generous surveys I see, the most optimistic surveys I see, would say that um, of those who attend church regularly, a tithe is 12% of people, 13 maybe I've seen 15%. But a lot of times it's single digits. I mean, depending on who they're surveying, the church, the, who the survey sample is, but it's almost never a national average above anywhere in 15% or anything like that. So to be at f- over 40%, of people that say, you know what, I believe in this mission, I'm a part of it, I believe in what God calls me to, to give, I believe God has been generous to me, and so I want to live a generous life to, to others and to his purpose and to church, and to see those principles, that's really encouraging. And that's something as a church we ought to celebrate, and we ought to say, you know what, that's, that's really encouraging to see the commitment and the uh, level of giving that we have there. So that's a bit of a look in the mirror. That kind of says, here's where we are. Um, And I want to talk this morning about a little bit just about our our lives and our relationship to money and do a heart check for each of us on that. We want to say this year, uh, we try and come up with a statement each year around money. A lot of times we've said uh, in the last few years at Mount Hope, we live beneath our means so that we can give beyond our limits. Um, And that's uh, one way we've put it. This year we're saying God is generous, so we live generous towards others. That we serve a generous God who doesn't hold anything back from us, even his own son. And so that serves as the foundation for us to be generous to others. And we want to live as generous people to others. And so um, let's talk about that a little bit this year, uh, this, uh, this morning. Let me start by, uh, by getting at it this way. Jesus told a parable in Matthew chapter 13 that maybe we don't usually associate with talking about and thinking about money. But, but I, think it, um, I think it definitely bears on the topic. In Matthew chapter 13, it's recorded Jesus telling a parable of the sower or the seeds. And let me paraphrase it for you. Here's how it goes. Jesus says there was a sower... And he was sowing seed. And as he sowed seed, some of the seed fell on the path or or a walkway. Some of the seed fell on soil that was rocky. Some of the seed fell among thorns. And some of the seed fell on good soil. And then Jesus explains to his disciples what the parable means. And when he does, he says this, the seed represents the word of God. He says, when the word of God falls on the path, or the seed falls on the path, what that is like, it's like, it's like the word of God coming to a person, but they don't understand it. And before they get a chance, before it takes root, the enemy comes and steals it, snatches it away. Like they never, they never really understand the word of God. And that happens to some people. And and then he said, the rocky soil is like seed or the word of God that comes to a person's life and it starts to take root and it starts to grow a little bit, 
but it's rocky soil and it can't get really deep roots. And so when persecution comes, especially persecution and difficulty associated with following Jesus, the person falls away. There's no strong root. There's nothing to hold it there. The person actually falls away from God. There's, there's no root. And then he says, some falls on good soil. And when seed falls on good soil, a heart that's ready to receive it where it can take root, it takes root, it grows, it brings forth fruit exponentially in that person's life. It's good soil. But then there's this fourth type of soil, and it's the soil of thorns. Fell among the thorns. And here's what Jesus says about the thorns. Jesus says, as for what was sown among thorns, that is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I'll be honest, in the many times I've read this passage, my focus has often been on the cares of this world. Even the times I've preached this passage, I often, I can easily understand the cares of this world choking out the word of God. Because you have, you know what the cares of the world are like. You know the anxiety and worries and the things that come along with living in this world that can easily choke out a, a vibrant life with God. And just the very practical cares of the world. Every item you bring into your home becomes a care of the world. Becomes something you have to care for. Whether it be that brand new snowblower you are so thankful you got this year, right? And if you bought a new snowblower this year, you were, you were blessed in the fact that you actually bought a snowblower in the year it snowed. Many of us buy snowblowers, then it doesn't snow and you're kicking yourself. You know, yeah. But you, you're thankful for that snowblower, but now you've got another small engine to take care of, right? You've got to change the oil. You've got to grease it. You've got to change the shear pins. You've got you to do all this stuff. You, you've got another care. And that's just one thing. I mean, what about every appliance you bring into your house? What about, you know, when you choose to buy a bigger house and you have twice the number of toilets to clean or maintain? Or you've got twice the amount of lawn to cut. Or you've got, whatever it might be, you're thankful for the central air, but then you've got a central air conditioner that can break and needs to be maintained. The cares of the world. And Jesus says those things can choke out the word of God. And I understand that, and I get that, and I've preached that. What I often have skipped past is those next few words. And the deceitfulness of riches. That one I think I, I haven't dived into too much. And I look at that and say the deceitfulness of riches can choke out the word of God in my life. The deceitfulness of riches. And another way to put this is, the, um, is wealth, the seduction of wealth. That's another way, another translation for this. That wealth actually seduces you, draws you away, attracts you away from the things of God. And I wonder, what is the deceitfulness of riches? How do I know if I am being deceived? How do you know if you are being deceived by riches? How do you know if the word of God is being choked out of your life 
by the deceitfulness of riches. How do I know if I'm being tricked by treasure, if I'm being manipulated by money? How do I know when I have money and when money has me? That's what I want us to look at for a few minutes this morning. Because the word of God gets choked out in your life when your commitment to something gets in the way of you living out the word of God in your life. When your value you hold gets in the way of you being able to live out the word of God in your life. When a possession you hold gets in the way of you being able to live out the word of God. When a desire you hold gets in the way of you being able to live out the word of God. So I want to look this morning back at the book of James, because the book of James not only gives us this metaphor of the mirror, it also, James talks a lot about money. And we're not going to get into all James says about money and riches. We're going to just look at three passages real quickly this morning and really look at three warnings, three warnings of if these things, any one of them or all of them are true in your life, it could be that you and I are being deceived by riches. If any one of these things is true in your life, it could be that we're being deceived of riches. Now, before I give you the first one, let me tell you what's true about you. Here's what's true about you. You're going to hear these and you're going to say, that's not true about me. You're going to say, that's not me. Because just like when someone says, oh, this is, you know, when I read that article from the Globe and it said rich people, and you said, well, that's not me. I don't know, that doesn't apply to me. None of us think we're rich. None of us think we're greedy. None of us think we're envious. That's someone else. So you're going to think that. And I'm going to pray right now that God's going to get us past that. Lord, would you help us? It's hard to understand our own hearts. It's hard to see honestly a reflection in your word and in the mirror. Lord, would you by your Holy Spirit, in these next few minutes, allow us to see what we need to see in our hearts. Lord, would you be gentle even as you expose those things we may not want to look at but may be true about us? Because, Lord, ultimately, we want to follow you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so show us, Lord, those places in our lives, especially in relation to something like money, where we may need a correction, an adjustment, a challenge, even a chastisement, Lord, from you, where we may need to ultimately repent of something. Lord, would you by your Holy Spirit reveal that to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. First one is this, you may be deceived or by riches if your treatment of people changes based on the amount of money a person has. You may have a place in your life that you are being seduced by wealth if the way you treat someone changes based on the amount of money you think that they have. Maybe it's the way because of the car they drive, the house they live, or the address they have, and you think, well, this person has wealth, and if you treat them well because they're wealthy, or if you treat someone poor because you think they're poor, poorly because you think they're poor, if that happens, you and I are on the track to being deceived by riches, to being seduced by wealth. Here's how James talks about it, James chapter 2, and if you're in your chair rack Bible, if you want to look at it in the scripture, it's page 1011, 1011 in your chair rack Bible. James chapter 2, verse 1 says this, 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let me stop right there for a second because this is important. This is important for this verse and for the next three, two passages we're going to look at. James says, my brothers. Now, by that, I also think he includes my sisters. Don't think you're exempt, ladies, from what James is saying here. He's using language pro contemporary to his time, but he is including everybody in this. But here's what you need to understand about that term. He's not just throwing it out like a to whom it may concern. This isn't general. This is... This is carefully chosen familial language that indicates he is talking to those who would call themselves Christians, those who are connected through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus and would follow Jesus. So he's talking to the church. In fact, he, clarifies, he makes that abundantly clear by saying, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of glory. And you say, why is that important? Because I don't want us to hear this as, hey, you outside the church that have a problem with this, listen up. No, he's saying, hey, you inside the church that have a problem with this, listen up. He's saying, we Christians, we followers of Jesus have a problem with this, and we need to look at it. And he says, show no partiality as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then he gives this illustration. What's that look like? Well, here's what I'm talking about. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. If you fulfill, if you really fulfill the royal law, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, if you do that truly and honestly to everybody who is your neighbor, the rich and the poor, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you treat the wealthy person well, and you treat the poor person poorly, you're sinning. And you say, why would we do this? Because this is the way our world operates. And it is hard to walk in those doors and not bring that world in with you. Because in our world, the wealthy get treated well. They drive the best cars. They stay in the best hotels. They have the, the, the nicest homes. They have, the wealthy get treated well. They have the best places. Whether they pay for them or they're given to them, the wealthy are treated well. So we, if we're not careful in our own hearts, can bring the same thing in. Well, if you're wealthy, we treat you well. And the poor are sometimes often used to getting pushed aside and treated 
poorly. And if we're not careful, those same attitudes can creep into our hearts. And James says, if that's true, then the deceitfulness of riches can be seducing you away and choking out the word in your life. And be careful, because the good news is not for sale. Jesus didn't come for a certain income level to only receive his message of good news. And so I think one of the places we have to be careful about is the deceitfulness of riches is when we see ourselves treating someone well simply because they're wealthy or we perceive them as that, that there may be something in our heart that's being deceived by riches. How do you respond to this? I mean, repent when you see it in your heart like anything. We repent when we see these things in our heart. Maybe a practice would be, is there a place in my life where I can show a preference for the poor, where I can make sure that I am sharing with those who cannot share with me in the same way, or at least in the same way. Everyone has things they can offer, but maybe I can offer and care for someone in the way that they might not be able to give it back to me, reciprocate it, because a lot of our giving ends up being reciprocal giving at times. So that's one. The second thing is this. You may be being deceived by riches if your requests to God are less for sustaining provision and more for selfish indulgence. Pay attention to your prayer life. Pay attention to the prayers that you pray. James talks about this in chapter 4, and here's what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James is saying there, right there, he's saying, look, if you are asking God for things simply for your own selfish indulgence and for your own natural passions, you're being deceived by riches. You're being seduced by wealth. Then he goes on in chapter 4. I'm not going to unpack all this, but I want to read it because I think it's these imperatives and these, these truths or these promises are important. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has to make dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We're not going to take the time to unpack all of that. I encourage you to spend some time even reading and thinking about it this week and how that relates to this idea. This is how we repent. When we find a, something in ourselves, like always praying and asking God for selfish reasons for things, here's James' formula, his response to this. 
And that's where he puts it. So if your prayers look more like my kingdom come and my will be done rather than your kingdom come and your will be done, and they're less, give us this day our daily bread and more, I really want filet mignon every day, it might be a sign that you are being deceived by riches, being seduced by wealth. Be careful. Our interactions with money form us. And we need to be aware of the places that might show that we are being malformed or formed in a way unlike Christ's. And I want to continue on there. Uh, third point is this. Third point, you might be being deceived by riches if you are willing to sacrifice character for comfort. If you are willing to sacrifice character for comfort or you elevate products profits and possessions over people. That might be a sign that you are being deceived by riches, that you are being seduced by wealth. Here's how James puts it. James chapter 5, verse 1. He starts out, come now you rich. I want to just stop, pause there for a second because, again, you're going to read that and say, I'm not rich. Okay. Look at the rest of the world. Uh, we're not, I don't have to go into all the statistics. But I want to say this. I, I don't think James here is just trying to introduce some classism. I, I think what James is recognizing is a truth that's true. It's the same truth the Boston Globe recognized. Because I believe all truth is God's truth. And here's a truth in the world. When you're rich, the amount of money you have, the amount of possessions, the amount of position you have, change. It does something to you. It does something to your soul, and there better be a depth of your soul to handle that kind of position and power and riches, or it's going to ruin you. And so James and the Bible talks very clearly, so look, if, if this is true about you, be careful, because there's a seduction to it that'll try and choke the word out of your life. And so he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And then he says this, verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's that statement in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying against you. That leads me to that statement. You sacrificed character for comfort. Instead of having the integrity to pay those who work for you what they have earned, when they should be paid it, you fraudulently held it back. And you sacrificed your character for some bit of comfort or money or interest earned or whatever. And I think about that and I wonder, how does that apply to us? Are there places we do that? I think this one, maybe you look at that and you say, well, that's not me. I don't sign anyone's paycheck. I don't, I don't pay anyone's wages, don't you? 
every time you pay a bill, every time you have an opportunity to pay a bill on time, or pay a bill late, or maybe just hold on to the money a little longer, every time I owe someone something, do I sacrifice my character for a little bit of comfort by either holding it back or not paying them what we agreed on or, 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 not, or changing the terms or whatever it might be? Those temptations are there. And be careful because if we're tempted by them and we give in to them, it may be that we are being seduced by wealth or being deceived by riches. You need to be careful about that. I was thinking about that one this week, and I was thinking, how do we apply this? Where do I see it? I heard a news story this week. Maybe you heard it. Anyone hear this news story this week about the possibility of the government uh, instituting regulations limiting the bank fees that they can charge on overdrawn accounts? No, you had more important things to think about this week. All right. Well, I heard this news story. It's a news story that the government is considering that in 2025, they're going to put a limit, a cap. They're going to lower how much banks can charge people when they overdraw their account, what the fee can be. On the, and um, for many reasons, for, not the least of which is the people that get charged this fee are usually the people that can afford it the least. And, and yet banks, these fees compound on each other and all kinds of things. So, so they're talking about the government uh, setting a state that you can only charge so much on these fees. And the banks make billions of dollars off these fees. And so they shot back with a kind of counter story. And the counter story from the banks was that if that is the case, if that happens, if the government does this, then many of the reward and points programs connected with the banks and their cards will be negatively impacted. And I said, wait, what? How are, how are, how are these things connected? And are these things connected? And it made me think about this passage a little bit. Because I, I, if I make this connection, I said, are you telling me that my free hotel room last month, my free hotel room last month, from my points program was paid for from fees the bank collected from people who overdrew their bank account and then got dinged by the bank for it? I thought, you know, that free hotel room just came from the bank's pot of magic money someplace. Or just the hotel's generosity. But you're telling me there's a connection between, by your story, not mine, <laughs> between my free hotel room and these fees. I remember when Wendy and I were starting out and uh, we were, you know, in a place where we were, you know, paycheck to paycheck, paying bills, getting started. And I remember writing a check that overdrew our account, not unknowingly writing a check that overdrew our account and getting hit with that fee and seeing and going and seeing that bank account and saying, what is this? And then going to the bank, like physically driving to the bank. Does anyone drive to the bank anymore? It's not just physically driving to the bank, talking to a person <laughs> and being like, what is that? Well, that's a fee because you overdrew your account. And, and, and then there's a, like a fee, and then we paid it, and then there's a fee for paying the overdraw. And, and it's like, I'm like, well, I'm not sure if you've seen my account. I'm pretty sure you have. We can't pay the fee, and that's why you charge the fee. <laughs> and I remember the frustrating and humiliating at times feeling in that moment. And I thought, wait, is that what just paid for my hotel room? 
And I don't know that that's directly connected to what James is talking about here. But it's at least something I need to think about. Are there places in our world where we somehow, our comfort is somehow built on some type of exploitive practice of another human being? I'm not saying you have to go and cancel your benefit program. Maybe God's calling you to do that. I'm just saying these are the things that in our world that we need to think about, that we need to be careful about, that are we, we need to at least think, okay, am I, is the word of God, am I, am I li- is my ability to live out the word of God in my life being affected by some of the financial practices that might be either in my life passively or actively around me? Sometimes we can benefit from these things, and then when we come to knowledge of them, we need to at least think about them in light of the gospel, because money forms us. Our finances form us. How we handle it forms us. It has an effect on our soul. And in my observation and limited humble experience, I think more people are seduced away from the Lord by wealth than convinced not to believe in him by argument. I I, I think more people have the word of God choked out of their life by their desire for money or wealth than are convinced to leave the Lord because of some type of logical argument. They They may say, I just can't believe in Jesus. But I think more often it's, I don't want to believe it. Because then I might have to live as if it's true and has a claim on my life and my money and my finances. Because God is a generous God. And he calls us. But more than that, he expects us to then be generous people. And to live generous lives. And to hold what we are given loosely to be used for his purposes, to love our neighbor well, and to make sure that we are not being seduced by the wealth and the riches of this world. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come back as we close out. Just a reminder, God is generous with us, so we live generously towards others. So what's the takeaway for you? What are you supposed to do with this? thought about that, and I thought there's some general takeaways. I mean, maybe you're a student that's graduating high school, and you're considering, where am I going to go to school next year? And you need to think about, how much of those student loans that they're offering me am I going to take? Not that it's wrong or morally wrong to take student loans. I took student loans, but, I, but those, of, those of us that have taken them and understand and been in that position realize It's going to have an impact on your freedom and what you can or cannot do. And will you think through, and should you think through then, how much, how much of that is going to have a hold on my life? That might be one. Or maybe you're starting out in life and you just got married and and you're starting out and you became used to the lifestyle of growing up in your parents' home and the comfort of that, not realizing the decades of work and time that they took to get to that place. But you've got a credit card company saying you can have it now. 
You can have it now. You can have that lifestyle you're used to now. It's just 29% interest. Or maybe you're further along in life and you're tempted to cut corners at work or to take advantage of something that everyone else is taking advantage of in some way, but you know that it's actually sacrificing a part of your character to gain a little bit of comfort. What I know is when Jesus talked about money, it depended on the person who he was talking to. When he was talking to a rich young ruler, let me paraphrase, he said, this money, your finances, your wealth has a hold on your heart. And so if you want eternal life, give it all away to the poor and come follow me. Because that's what that rich young ruler, that's what that man needed because that had a hold on his heart. But I also know in a passage not far from there when he's talking to a man named Zacchaeus and he went over Zacchaeus' home and Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he cheated people. Zacchaeus said, after Jesus coming to his home and putting his faith and trust in Jesus, Zacchaeus said, I will repay anyone I wronged up to half of my possessions. Now that's interesting, not everything. He'll do it up to half. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this home. He seemed fine with that answer. It was a different answer for Zacchaeus than it was the rich man. And then there's the widow with the two coins, and Jesus said, she gave more than anybody. And then there's Mary with this beautiful jar of perfume, a year's wages, and he says, that's a, he broke it and anointed his feet, and Jesus said, that's beautiful. When Jesus was talking about people with money, it really was dependent on the person he was talking to. So what's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Are there places in your life where God said, you know what? You too often treat people differently based on their possessions or positions or money. And that's something I want to deal with this morning. Or maybe, you know what? Your prayers are a little too focused on yourself and, and, and your comfort and, and you're praying and asking for things, you're not receiving them because you're really asking for your own selfish reasons. And I'd like to deal with that this morning. Or is it there's places in your life where you are not treating people fairly in relation to money, and I want to deal with that. We want to be careful that we are not being deceived by riches. The deception of riches is that they can offer you what only God can offer you. That they can offer you the peace, the security, the contentment that only God can offer you. That they can actually offer you legacy and eternal life the way that only God can offer you. In fact, there's another article in The Atlantic that I, that I read recently that said, you know, people think that more money is gonna lead to contentment. And they did studies on this and they said, even if you quadruple someone's income, it barely moves the needle on how content they feel. They said if you move someone from $15,000 a year income to $250,000 a year income, it made almost an imperceptible difference in how they felt in their happiness and contentment. Now you, some of you are saying, I'd like to give that a chance. I'd like to give it a shot. But that's the deception of riches say it's going to deliver something that only God can deliver. Lord, 
Father, I said it at the beginning of this message, it's hard for us to see our own hearts, but I believe your Holy Spirit speaks and that you may be exposing some things in our hearts right now. Lord, I pray if there's places in our lives where money has gotten a hold of us in a way that it shouldn't, where it has caused us, Lord, it has choked out the word in our lives and kept us from being able to live a life consistent with your word, then Lord, help us to repent and turn from that. Lord, may we be a church and may we be a people that nothing has a hold of us but Jesus, that nothing has a hold and a claim in our life but you. Because what we've been purchased by is not the money of this world, but the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what has a hold on us. And that is what has a claim on us. And so, Lord, as we experience your undeserved and unbelievable generosity, may you make us a people who live generous lives to others. In Jesus' name. And we'll close out our service and worship.